Growing up, I didn't really play too many games. I think I've said this before. Uh, growing up, I really believed in the word board game because I thought it was B-O-R-E-D. Board games. I felt like that my whole life growing up. I think I've said that before. The only game that my family played was the card game Rook. I ever play Rook? Shout out to my son, Harper Rook Hogan. That was the only game that we played growing up. And I didn't really get introduced to board games until I started dating Jensie and I started to see her family and my in-laws and, and they played a lot of board games and I instantly fell in love with board games because I love the strategy that it takes to win a board game or to even understand how to play the board game and I love the mental battle that takes place and I even love the mechanics of, of how the game functions and, and how it is to be successfully played and how easy it is to see all the different facets that had to take place in order for this game to be a functioning game. Have you ever thought that? On some of these complicated games, have you ever thought about how much thought went into the rules and the guidelines and, and, the, and the descriptions of all the different pieces and what each piece does and, and how the designer of that game put that game together so that it would work and that it would be a game that people would enjoy. It's amazing and, and sometimes you just step back and appreciate how much the designer had to do to make the game work properly. In any game, there, there's going to be a set of rules. There's going to be a set of guidelines that you have to abide by and you have to, to go by in order to go throughout the game. Those guidelines and those rules make it possible to play the game. They make it clear what needs to be done in order to win the game. And if you've played any dis, uh, uh, difficult game, you probably know the more difficult the game is, the more convoluted the, the, the guidelines are, right? The more convoluted the, the rule book is and the instructions need to be detailed. You know though, the more I play games, the more I realize that every single time I play a game, it feels like no matter how many times I've played the game, someone is going to ask a question that we've never thought of before. You ever been there? You're playing a game, you've played it a hundred times, and then somebody says, Can, can I do this with this character or, or, or can I do this with this piece and, and you don't know how to answer the question because you've never thought about doing it before and you've never seen it done before and so what do you do when that happens? You go to the rule book. You go to the, the, the set of guidelines that the designer ha has put for this game and and, and you stop everything. Sometimes you even have to go to Google, right? To, to Google the, this, this question that has stumped the whole table that's playing the game. You consult that rule book and you consult that guideline until you find the answer. But one thing is for sure. You can't continue playing that game until that answer is given, right? You can't continue playing that game until the question has been answered that has been asked. Because you'll never know if you played the game correctly. You'll just start making it up as you go, right? And if you make it up as you go, you start to impose your own opinion and you start to 
just play it however you imagine it should be played. And that's when you start playing your own game. Somebody said that's when you start winning. Okay, Phil. All right. But that's when you stop playing the game that the designer intended, and that's when you start playing a game that you have devised, a game that you have created, and you're playing your own game instead of the game the designer intended. Tonight, in our study of the restoration movement, we have a much more serious matter on our hands than just a simple game. Tonight we're talking about something way more serious than than just a game, a man-made rule book. Tonight we talk about something as serious as it gets when it comes to our faith in God. Because we're not talking about something trivial. We're not talking about uh, matters that maybe deal with expediency where there is some, some leeway left and right maybe on a matter. We're not talking about one of those tonight. Tonight we're talking about the very essence of how we worship our God. And we'll be investigating some of the very motives behind our worship. And the results of such an, of the results of such an investigation are, is going to determine if we are worshiping the Lord the way He would have us, in spirit and in truth. Tonight, we are going to be studying one of the greatest issues that the Restoration Movement had to face and one of the greatest issues that we face to this very day. Our study tonight is on the issue of instrumental music and its place in the context of Christian worship. But before we get into that study, let's briefly remind ourselves what has brought us to this point tonight in our study. In phase one of our study, we talked about the introduction to the movement and we set the biblical foundation of restoration theology and the restoration plea. And in phase two of our study, we brought to ourselves the, the foundation of the movement. We saw and we went throughout church history and saw the ground floor of all that had to happen that led up to the restoration movement. And in phase three, that'll go, yep. In phase three of our study, we brought the formation of the movement. We saw these prolific writings and these prolific sermons that launched the grassroots movement to restore the practices of the New Testament church. And then in phase four of our study, we've been engaged in thus far, we've been talking about the instruction of the movement. We've been looking to see how the restorers interpreted the scriptures and how they addressed the issues and how we can too to this very day. It started out talking about pattern theology and how God's Word gives us a pattern to follow, a formula to follow, a recipe to follow. He has prescribed exactly what He wants through commands and examples and implications in Scripture. And We started off looking at baptism and how that's, that's evident throughout the Scriptures that God has a plan for baptism and it's that plan that we're going to be watching after the conclusion of this lesson. It's amazing to see that plan come to fruition even in our day today. And lastly, last week we talked about the Missionary Society and, and the issue that the restoration had to face and the, the implications of, of such an issue. We saw that last week the restoration movement, if you were to describe it as a windshield, it received its first crack. 
The first crack in the windshield of the restoration movement was the Missionary Society. And, and we talked about how when you get a crack in a window, what's going to inevitably happen? It's going to spread. That crack is going to spread, it's going to expand, it's going to go further and further and, and get larger and larger. And all it takes is time. And that's exactly what we're going to see in our study tonight. Remember, last week we talked about the institution of the American Christian Missionary Society. Does anybody remember when that was? 1849. And two years later, two short years later, in 1851, the question of instrumental music was raised in the Brotherhood. It wasn't accepted at, outright at first, but that crack in the windshield just slowly expanded and spread into the issue we are dealing with tonight. So let's get right into it. Garrett writes in his book on the Stone Campbell Movement, he says, the most serious controversies were by far missionary societies and instrumental music. The latter was the more critical of the two, for everyone who opposed societies also objected to the instrument, while some anti-instrumentalists were staunch supporters of the societies. Bill Humble is one of the main resources that we've had for this class in his book, The Story of the Restoration. And in that book, he talks about the process behind these two issues, uh, how this, these issues came to be, and it all comes down to this idea of expediency. And while there are some things in our day and age that is expedient for us to do, and we've talked about that in former classes, some people started to think that the missionary society was an expediency that they could have, and therefore inevitably led to people who thought that the instrument was an expediency that we can permit today. In fact, J.W. McGarvey, and that's probably a name that you know if you've been in the, in the Lord's Church a long time, you've probably heard the name J.W. McGarvey. You've probably also heard the name David Lipscomb. These two men were opposed to one another when it came to the missionary society, but they were in lockstep when it came to the instrument. And you can see that, that level of, of confusion, that level of, of even small division between the two of them. And their discussion of these issues led Bill Humble to say this about the two men. Lipscomb did chide men like McGarvey for what seemed an obvious inconsistency in opposing the organ so strongly but supporting the missionary society. Lipscomb thought that if he could open the door of expediency wide enough to admit the missionary society, he could take in the instrument with no extra effort. What stands out to you from this quote is, I hope, what we talked about last week inconsistency. We talked about this as our main takeaway from last week. When, when, when the church is inconsistent and when we are providing an inconsistent message to the world, it gives the world an excuse to stay in the world. And yet here we have this inconsistency between J.W. McGarvey and Brother David Lipscomb. And so before we even get back into this idea of instrumental music, I just want to take a moment and remember, remember kind of the process that brought us to this point. 
Remember, we just talked about the formation of the movement. And that was when we talked about the last will and testament. And you see there, it's in 1804 when Brother Barton W. Stone wrote that. And, and shockingly absent is the idea of instruments. It wasn't even an issue. And then in 1809, Thomas Campbell wrote his declaration and address. And, and in that, there, there's no issue when it comes to the instrument. It was already decided. And then you have Alexander Campbell's sermon on the law, and yet again in 1816 there is no mention of the instrument. And then when the Stone and Campbell movements unite in 1832, there, there is no discussion on the instrument because it was, it was already decided upon. It, it, was a, it was a well-known fact that, that this isn't something that the New Testament talks about, so it's not something that we're going to do. In fact, the instrument was absent from all of restoration history until the year 1851. So for decades, the feeling towards the instrument was unanimous in the brotherhood. The feeling towards the instrument was so unanimous that they didn't even discuss it. It wasn't even an issue. It wasn't even a question. Stone's congregations before they united didn't use them. Campbell's congregations before they united, they didn't use them. And so all of a sudden, here's the question in 1851. And it's been a while, but I want to take you back. Do you remember these men here? Huldrych Zwingli, John Calvin. We mentioned even back then, very shortly, that even back then, hundreds of years before the Restoration Movement, in the Reformation Movement of the 16th century, people like these men were already against the use of instruments. So this isn't a new issue. They've already had to address it for hundreds of years and people like these men, even though they aren't brothers in Christ, people like these men were already saying that the use of the instrument should not be permitted in the Christian worship. But let's go back further than even that. Remember back to one of our first studies we were talking about the Edict of Thessalonica, this this edict that made Christianity the, the known religion throughout Rome and the only acceptable religion, you can trace it back all the way here. But even in 380 A.D., in the 4th century, they weren't using the instrument. There was no instance of the instrument being used all the way back to, to the 4th century. All the history that happens from the 1st century all the way to the 4th century it doesn't show up until the 7th century of Christianity. The instrument does not even appear in any, any type of, of secular history or writings that we can look at until the 800s. 800 so years after the events of the New Testament, we don't see the instrument until the 7th century. Excuse me, the... 600s, not the 800s. The 7th century is when we see the instrument come in, that the 600s, 80, 600 years after the events of the New Testament. And that's not meaning that it was widespread at the time. In fact, it wasn't widespread until about the 9th or the 10th century is when we start to see the widespread acceptance of the instrument. But 
yet today I believe we think, and a lot, a lot of people think in Christianity that it's been that way since day one. That that's what was acceptable from day one in Acts chapter 2, that the, the Christians were blowing trumpets and playing guitars all the way back to then. But if you know the history, it doesn't even show up hundreds and hundreds of years after those in the first century church. But let's come back to the restoration movement. Let's come back to what we've been talking about in 1851. The first question over the instrument is raised. It says, seeing these articles, John Rogers wrote Alexander Campbell and asked his opinion about instrumental music. Campbell's answer was brief and blunt. He stated that if churches had no real devotion or spirituality in them, instrumental music might be an essential prerequisite to devotion. But he added, to all spiritually minded Christians, such age would be like a cowbell in a concert. After Campbell's statement, the question was not even discussed again for another 10 years. Man, right? What a, what, what a comment. What a statement from Alexander Campbell and what you're going to see is, is the influence that Alexander Campbell had over the brotherhood at the time, right? We've talked about that a little bit. But here in this statement you can see that Campbell dispels any notion that the instrument could possibly be valid. In fact, he, he, he kind of sarcastically says, yeah, if a church has no devotion or spirituality about them, I guess that's what you do. You throw some instruments in there. I guess that would be a necessity if a church had no spirituality or devotion to Christ. And then he makes his stance as clear as possible when he says to everyone who is spiritually minded, what, what he's saying is to, to people who actually care about the pattern to people who actually care about New Testament practices, this would be like a cowbell in a concert. And no, not more cowbell, right? No, not in the Lord's church. That's what we're seeing here in this quote. And I love how Bill Humble says at the end of it, he says, after Campbell said this, the, the issue of instrumental music wasn't even brought up for another decade. It's like he put the whole discussion to bed for, a, for a 10 years. And again, you can see that influence that he had over the brotherhood. So we're fast forward to a 10 years later, we're going to see L.L. Pinkerton. What a name. Of course, L.L. Pinkerton brought the instrument to the church. Of course, with a name like that. Right? No. But it was L.L. Pinkerton in, in a church in Kentucky, Midway Church of Christ in Kentucky had a preacher named L.L. Pinkerton and around 1860, 1861 they started to implement the instrument. It says, writing in 1860, Pinkerton stated that as far as he knew, he was the only preacher in Kentucky who had advocated using instrumental music in the churches and the Midway congregation was the only one that had introduced it reason for its use at Midway was the poor singing which was so bad according to Pinkerton that it would scare even the rats from worship and while that may be a very funny quote and maybe you've been in a church like that or maybe you've sat by somebody like that before 
where you would think even the rats would run away from this guy or this girl. This was the motivation. This was the motivation of the introduction of the instrument into the church. Pinkerton's motive wasn't simply to follow God's Word more closely or to follow the pattern of New Testament worship. It wasn't even to perhaps glorify God in an enhanced way. It was simply because of how awful that congregation sang. In his mind, it was because the church was tone deaf. And when he measured that church against human standards, when he compared it to other congregations, the singing wasn't up to par. And so in order to enhance worship for himself, in order to enhance worship for human ears, they employed the instrument. Even in this congregation in Midway, Kentucky, it wasn't well received at first. At first, it wasn't widely received within that own congregation. In fact, one of the elders of that congregation went in after hours and took the organ out of the place. But later he returned it when the whole membership wanted it back. And so one of the members even suggested, hey, hey, let's come together on a Saturday night and practice if we're that awful, Pinkerton. Why don't we come together on Saturday night and, and we'll practice some of these songs and we'll get better? If we're that terrible, let's come and practice. And so this is what happens. At first it was suggested that a meeting be held on Saturday night to practice the songs. Shortly afterwards, someone brought in a melodeon to be used in getting the right pitch. Before long, one of the sisters was accompanying the singing with her playing on the melodeon. The group observed that the effect of the use of the melodeon was good on the singing. And so it was decided to try to use the instrument on the Lord's Day worship. Notice what West says. This is Earl Irving West in his Search for the Ancient Order, Volume 1. He, he says that the group observed that the singing was better. The group decided that the singing was better. It sounded better to them. So we may as well adopt it into our regular worship. My question is, sounds better for who? Sounds better for who? For man or for God? Again, we see the motive isn't simply to offer something pleasing to God. God is not even taken into the situation or the scenario. It's to offer up something more pleasing to man. And so when it comes to the instrument, when it comes to the, the division that took place and even the argument that, that, that ensued, you're going to find two different ways that the restoration dealt with this issue. Well, maybe even three ways that the restoration dealt with this issue. But really, it comes down to the way Moses E. Lard, again, you got to love these names, Moses. It comes down to what Moses E. Lard said and what Benjamin Franklin said. And we, saw, we talked about Benjamin Franklin last week. Again, this isn't the guy on your $100 bill. I don't have any of those in my wallet. Maybe you do. But this isn't that guy. This is a distant relative, though, and he was a big leader in the Restoration Movement. It comes down to the way these two men saw this issue. 
And when you have to understand what Moses Lard was saying, Moses Lard wanted to purge all the liberals from the church. Instead of wanting to convince or win them, Lard just Lard he just wanted them gone. And so he publishes a, a series of rules and steps that the Christians should take if and when their congregation adopted the instrument. This is what he says. Lord advised the brotherhood how to deal with the problem. First, every preacher should resolve never to enter a church containing an organ. Second, no Christian who had moved from a congregation should ever unite with one using an organ. And third, Lord advised that wherever a church or whenever a church introduced an organ, those who opposed it should abandon the church immediately. Through this course of action, Lord believed these organ-grinding churches will be in the lapse of time, be broken down, or wholly apostatized. And the sooner they are fragments, the better for the cause of Christ. So from this statement here, Moses, Lord, he's saying, don't enter a church building that has an instrument. Don't think about a church building that has an instrument. And don't even talk about a church that has an instrument, right? It's very bold. Very bold statement coming from Moses Lard. He says, don't place your membership at one. In fact, if a congregation starts to implement the idea of an instrument, just get up and leave. The sooner we get all these liberals out of here, the better we'll be. That's where Moses Lard's coming from in, in his approach to the instrument. But remember, we have two, two approaches to the instrument. You got brother, uh, brother Benjamin Franklin on the other side. Let's see what he has to say. Franklin was bitterly opposed to the use of instrumental music in worship. He regarded the instrument as an innovation and refused to preach wherever the instrument was used. Another quote says, We put it on no ground of opinion or expediency. The acts of worship are all prescribed in the law of God. Franklin was standing for the earlier principles of the Restoration Movement as he argued that the New Testament prescribed the church's worship. And that instrumental music was an unauthorized innovation. Furthermore, Franklin saw the instrument as a symptom of of deeper changes that were occurring in the church. He called the organ the accompaniment of lifeless, formal, and fashionable churches in cities where pride, aristocracy, and selfishness prevail, where the poor have no sympathy, comfort, or place. From these quotes, you can see, obviously, where, where, where is Benjamin Franklin on this issue? Does he disagree with Moses Lard? No. He agrees that Moses Lard is right when he says that the instrument has no place in Christian worship. Brother Franklin, it says, he was bitterly opposed to the instrument. Brother Franklin says, this isn't a matter of opinion or expediency. God prescribed how he wants to be worshipped. So they're in a complete agreement. However, what you do with congregations and how you fellowship with those people. That is where they found their biggest disagreement. Franklin was against the instrument just as much as Moses Lard, but instead of wanting to purge progressives from the brotherhood, he went back to what Brother Campbell and what Brother Stone talked about when they came together 
for unity. You see, Franklin was a powerful orator, and he was a powerful writer, and he powerful periodicals that he wrote. And he wrote that division was the last thing that God would ever want among his body. He says this, Even though Franklin viewed the instrument as a departure from the ancient order, contrary to the disciple plea, he was nonetheless so endowed with the movement's passion for unity that he would not make it a test of fellowship. When in 1876 the church in Charleston, Illinois, elected to use an organ, the dissenters asked him what to do. His answer called for separation, if need be, without a breach of fellowship, which illustrates how strongly the, the disciple leadership believed that W.T. Moore stated as an epigram, we are free to defer, but not to divide. Before we get into the scriptures, before we start talking about what the scriptures have to say about worship, what the scriptures have to say about singing, what the scriptures have to say about this issue, maybe we can look at both of these men and say, you're both wrong. Perhaps today we can look at both of these men and, and how they approached the situation and they approached the subject and perhaps even how they communicated their view. Maybe we can look at both of them and say, you're both wrong. Maybe we can look at them and say, parts of what they're saying are both right. Because while it is important to stand for the truth and to disassociate from those who willfully ignore the pattern of God's Word, just like Moses Elard was saying, we're also told to love our enemies. We're also told to love our neighbor. We're also told to, to, to pull that brother or sister aside just as Aquila and Priscilla did and help them understand more accurately what the Word of God says. We're also told when it comes to our life as Christians, we're also told that Jesus gave us so much patience and so much compassion that in order to be children of His, we have to show the same patience and the same compassion to others. Conversely, it is just as important to strive for unity and strive for love and strive for compassion and strive for patience, just like we just talked about and just like brother, what Brother Benjamin Franklin was suggesting. However, just like what Moses Elar was saying, we cannot do it at the expense of truth and at the expense of the standard that God has set and the expectations that He has. So we can look at this situation both ways and, and, and we can see flaws in both men and, and even today we can have flaws with the way we approach certain subjects. So before we go into scriptures, let's just understand that we need to have a lot more self-examination before we start to point the finger at others and try to condemn them before we understand why they're coming from where they're coming from or how they've gotten to where they are at that point. You know, when we look at the Old Testament, 
When we take the time to go back to the Old Testament, we can see example after example. We can see command after command of not only God allowing the instrument, but God commanding that the Israelites use the instrument. Well, there you go. There are some commands, there are some examples, and there are some implications in Scripture that God tells the Israelites to use instruments. Boom! Discussion over. That's how some people act. End of discussion. Well, remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about Alexander, Alexander Campbell's Sermon on the Law. And in that sermon, we talked about how Alexander pointed out the very distinct differences between the Old and New Testaments. Remember how the old law was done away with? It was nailed to the cross. It was made obsolete. We saw those verses a few weeks ago. Remember how the Christians are to abide by the new law? We saw that from that sermon. So because of that, we are to base our practices, we are to base our lives on the New Testament pattern. So let's go to the New Testament. Let's see what the New Testament has to say about this. In John chapter 4... You're going to see Jesus tell the Samaritan woman exactly what the Father is looking for when it comes to New Testament worship in the New Covenant. In verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What's Jesus saying to the Samaritan woman? He's saying it's not enough to have one or the other. He's saying it's not enough to be overflowing with the Spirit. Because you can have the best Spirit. You can have a heart that is the purest heart. A heart that is pouring out with love and pouring out with devotion. But if it is devoid of truth, it's useless to the Father. It's also not enough to be overflowing with the truth. It's not enough to simply know what God's Word says and, and know what the pattern is and know what the commands are and know what the examples are and know what the implications are and, and know all the different things within your heart, within your mind, and your tongue is just constantly telling the truth. It's not enough to have such things so decently and in order that your worship's like a boot camp. It's not enough be overflowing with the truth if you are devoid of spirit it is still useless to the Father what Jesus said is God desires his followers to worship him in spirit and in truth and the two are not mutually exclusive and the two cannot truly exist without the other you cannot truly worship God in truth if the Spirit is not present. You cannot truly worship God in spirit if the truth is not present. They go hand in hand. And the relationship is clear, and Jesus makes that relationship clear. So, what does God desire? Okay, 
He says, I desire you worship in spirit and in truth. I desire when, when, when the time has now come, he's talking about the institution of the church, the institution of the new covenant. Okay, so what happened once the church was instituted? What happened in the first century among the apostles and the disciples who had to take this and, and live it out? What happened? What does the New Testament say about this part of our worship? Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. You're going to see in verse 19, Paul says, Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. I'm going to ask you something. Where, where, does, get, where, where does Paul say that we are to make melody? Does he say that, that we are to make melody with our fingers, with our hands, with our lips? No. Paul says we are to make melody in our hearts. We are to make melody with our voice. As we sing, we make melody in our heart. Notice he doesn't say sing and make melody in your hearts to yourselves. Is that what he says? Sing and make melody in your heart to yourself. So if you're not singing good, do whatever it takes to make it sound good. No, he says sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. Worship is to the Lord. God is the audience of our worship. And since God is the audience of worship, we have to worship Him the way He has prescribed. Because He is the audience, we have to do it the way He wants. Because He is the audience, He is the one to be glorified, not you and me. I want you to remember back to the Pinkerton preacher in the Midway, Kentucky Church of Christ. What was the motive behind that institution of the instrument? was because it didn't sound good to man. As if man was the audience of worship. We see here that God is the audience of worship. You know what? God made every single voice in this room. God made every single voice in this room and it is not our tune that is a sweet smelling aroma to him it is our obedience to what God has prescribed that's what glorifies his name turn over Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 Paul says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Here again, Paul is going to talk about we are to sing with greats in our heart. In our hearts to the Lord. Again, who's the audience of worship? To the Lord. Too many times people sing horizontally when God intended it for it to be vertical. 
Well, somebody says, well, Ben, he also says to teach and admonish one another. He also says in Ephesians 5 to speak to one another. So God's not the only audience. Well, you know what? I have sat beside some of God's greatest singers and some of God's not-so-great singers in my life. And regardless of their mastery of the tone or the tune, it was never the tone or tune that spoke and admonished me. It was never the tone or the tune that taught me. It was the words. It was the words of the songs. That's why the Bible talks about praying with the understanding and and singing with the understanding. Understanding the words that you are singing. That's what teaches and admonishes me. When we sing these songs that are so evidently rooted in God's Word and and rooted in in God's will for our life, and we sing these powerful songs, that's what teaches and admonishes us. Not how well somebody gets the tune or not. We get so caught up on tune and tone that we could forget, we could care less about the audience which is actually God. You know, if God cared about the tune, if God cared about the tone, then He would have made every one of our voices perfect. If God cared about the tune or the tone or or how great you are at singing, He would have said so. He would have told us that we are to constantly be in an effort to increase our ability to sing. But he didn't. And because he didn't, every one of us can worship him in spirit and in truth when we obey the pattern he has prescribed to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. Somebody says, well, does this really matter? I mean, how 1970 can you get there? Does this really matter? Does God really care about the way we worship Him? I mean, all we're doing is just adding a little extra. Would God really care if if all I'm trying to do is make it a little better on myself and I don't have to hear that awful singer anymore? Remember back. Do not depart to the right. Do not depart to the left. Do not add, do not take away, do not loosen, do not bind. You know, the question, does it really matter? Does this really matter? You know, I wonder, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10 would say that it mattered. You remember Aaron's sons, they they knew how God had prescribed the certain fire that was to be offered. But instead, they offered a profane and strange fire. What does that mean? It's something God had never asked for. What happened to them? Is they were consumed and killed by that very fire. Does the use of instruments really matter, Ben? Well, I wonder if Uzzah 
in 2 Samuel chapter 6 would say that it mattered. When for generation after generation of Israelites knew not to touch the ark of the covenant because in doing so they would be struck dead. Then Uzzah steps up to stabilize the ark from falling off of that cart. Sure enough, he was struck dead. I, I wonder if Uzzah would think it matters. Well, Ben, both of those examples are in the Old Testament. You just got through saying they've been done away with. God's not like that in the New Testament. Well, I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 would feel that way. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Here we have this married couple. They lie about how much they gave. They lie to the Holy Spirit, which giving is another part of New Testament worship. And the disciples buried them that very hour. Do you think they would say it mattered how we worship God? Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You know, the very fact that the author of Hebrews points to acceptable worship implies what? That there is unacceptable worship in the sight of God. Because there is unacceptable worship in the sight of God, our God is a consuming fire. Because of that, our worship must be reverent. Our worship must be in awe of our Creator and our Master. Because He is that consuming fire. Never stop to think about all that God had to do in order for us to worship Him in the first place. Think of all that God had to do and all the things that God had to do and plan from before the foundation of the world for New Testament worship. After all that He's done, I think He deserves to be worshipped the way He originally asked for not in the way that we thought of a few centuries later. Tonight, as we try to bring this lesson home and, and make it matter to us tonight, it's obviously more than just an issue that we deal with today. Just like Benjamin Franklin said, the issue of the instrument is not really the issue. It's a symptom of a larger problem in the church it was true when he said that 200 years ago, and it's true tonight. The question I have to ask us tonight is what place do our motives originate? What place do, does, does your motive for worshiping God, where does it originate? 
What is your motive for, for the way that you live out your daily life? Where does that originate from? Because when we look at the history behind the use of instruments in Christian worship, you can see that the motive never centered around pleasing God. Because God simply never asked for it. And when our motives start to cross over that line from trying to please God to pleasing ourselves, we have made perhaps the most crucial error. When the reason why we do the things that we do is answered with, because he doesn't say I can't, you've missed the whole point of God's word. When we go along worshiping however we see fit, it's just like someone playing a game, making up the rules as they go. It's not what God designed. It's not what the Creator intended. Perhaps tonight you're all on board. Yeah! Instruments, boo! Singing, good! Maybe you're all on board. Let me just tell you something right now. If that's you and you don't sing and you don't make melody in your hearts to the Lord when we worship and you sit there week after week after week with your mouth closed, you're just as guilty as the person you just booed. You're just as, as sinful as the person that you just pointed your finger at. it goes back to that idea of consistency. You know, if I were to order a pizza, forgive me if this is too simplified, but if I said, Jensie, I, 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 I'm really feeling pizza tonight. Can you get out the app and get on Domino's? I want a large pizza. I want cheese and pepperoni. She came back with a pizza with anchovies and olives. Is that what I asked for? No. Ryder back there is having a fit. He knows that's not the pizza I asked for. He's a cheese and pepperoni man. No, it's not the pizza I asked for. And I know that's simplified. How true is that? God asked for something very simple. Mankind took it and complicated it, just like we always do. When it comes to the use of the instrument in Christian worship, the Bible tells us this is not a matter of expediency. The Bible shows us that there is, there is no implication that God ever wanted this. The Bible shows us that there is not a single example of their use in the New Testament church. The Bible tells us that there is no command that demands it. So how can we permit their use in our worship to God? You know, so many people, I've talked to people who have come out of denominationalism and have come out of using instruments and, and you talk to them and sometimes they just say, I don't know why, I don't, but for some reason I... I kept holding on to that instrument. 
For some reason, I was all about it when it comes to the baptism, it comes to all those other things y'all preach about and teach about in the church, but I, I just couldn't let go of the instrument. I, I just couldn't let it go. I, I had to hold on to this instrument. Why? What's the motive? Why would that be something that you just have to die on that hill when there is absolutely, positively no scriptural authority to back it? That's the question I have. But the answer I have for myself whenever my motives are out of line, whenever my motives get out of line, that's when I stop being someone that is created in God's image and I started creating a God out of the image I wanted. Sometimes we see that in Christianity. Tonight, the issue of the instrument has divided the brotherhood more and more as the years went by, even to this day tonight. It led to the ultimate division we're going to talk about in the movement between the Church of Christ and the Christian Church. And that divide continues even tonight. When we look at the restoration, the windshield of the restoration is at the brink of shattering entirely. But what if I were to tell you that the Civil War was just as responsible for division as missionary societies and the instruments? But that is to be continued. Remember, after this prayer, we're going to be baptizing Brother Joe up church into Christ. If you're interested in staying, We'd love to have you. We're going to have a period of, of people that need to leave. Feel free. But uh, the youth group's going to be coming down, and uh, we're going to enjoy joining the Up Church in this great moment tonight. Let's pray. Our dear, most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the ways that you bless us, the way that you love us, the pattern that you've set forth in your word. We pray that as we think about our motives and our heart, the reasoning why we do certain things and the reason why we don't do certain things, we pray that it'll always glorify you. It'll always point to you and what your will is ultimately for our lives. Forgive us when we come up short. Not a single one of us is perfect. Only your son is. It's in his name we pray. Amen.